So today, of course, obviously is Palm Sunday, right? A very, very traditional day, a very traditional celebration in the life of the church. And as you think over your time in church, how many Palm Sunday sermons have you probably heard? Right? If you're, now if you're young in the faith or you're a young person, maybe only a few, but if you're a senior citizen and you've grown up in the church, you may have heard 50, 60. Anybody think they've heard over 70 Palm Sunday? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of hands. 70 Palm Sunday sermons. So today, as we think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago, I want us to look at the story from a little different angle than maybe we've done before. And I want to approach the story through the lens of worship and praise, through a life of worship and praise. And we're going to be contrasting the worship and praise of the living God versus the worship and praise of idols that I was mentioning to the kids. And I think, you know, it's a good idea to get a handle on these concepts, the, the concepts of genuine worship versus the worship of idols, because sometimes we can really easily throw these terms around and they can be misused or misunderstood for a variety of reasons, sometimes without people even realizing it. And, you know, we have even in some ways tried in our culture to put a positive spin on the word idol. Like the popular TV show American Idol, right? You guys have all seen that. We've watched it tons of times. You know, we're all these millions of Americans that tune in every week to hear all these wannabe singers and and dancers kind of sing and dance their way into fame. So that whether they win or not, it's so much exposure that for many of them, they can't travel anywhere after that without being mobbed with adoring fans. Just kind of like Jesus was on this day that we're commemorating. So I want us to take a look at the lectionary text, and then we're going to explore some of those ideas a little deeper and kind of unpack this idea of worship and idols. So can keep that in the back of your mind. Now, reading today is primarily from Matthew chapter 21, and then we're going to link in at the end with just a couple of verses from Luke chapter 19. So here now the words of the true and living God. Matthew writes, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them back. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heavens. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they keep quiet the very stones along the road would burst into shouts of cheer. That's kind of a little twist there at the end of the reading, isn't it? With the idea of the the stones being the ones to cry out. And by twist, I mean normally it has been we human beings who, through our foolishness and our pride, have been the ones to worship the inanimate. We've been the, 
the ones who have fashioned gods in our own image out of wood and out of stone, and then we set them up as objects of devotion. But when you look at a passage like this, through the lens of worship, immediately here we see what one pastor described, and I love this quote. He said that if those who are divinely gifted with the ability to speak should remain silent, then those things that do not have the gift of speech will cry out. He said, if those who are divinely gifted with the ability to speak should remain silent, then those things that do not have the gift of speech will cry out. So in other words, all of the natural world around us recognizes God as creator and sustainer and as worthy of worship and praise, even if you and I sometimes have too many rocks in our head to acknowledge it. And it's always been that way. We're told in Romans chapter 1, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Oh yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they became... And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. And then Paul said, Amen. And those words of Scripture are just as true today as the day that the Apostle Paul wrote them. And I know now if you're thinking in our modern context and you hear The word idol, maybe you immediately think of a carved statue or some other physical object of devotion, but, you know, that's not always the case. Because a really good working definition of idolatry is anything other than God that becomes so central to us that we believe our lives would lose meaning without it. Right, an idol is anything that becomes so central to us that we believe our lives would lose meaning without it. And that really could be kind of a definition for worship, too, because at its core, if you think about it, worship is primarily just devotion of time and sacrifice of treasure. Devotion of time and sacrifice of treasure. And as we kind of dig into it, I want you to really think about the fact that anything in your life right now that takes the primary amount of your time and the sacrifice of your money, your health, your family relationships becomes something that you are actually worshiping. I'll give you a good example. Think for a minute of someone that you know that's an alcoholic. Now, if you were to ask them if they worship that drink that was sitting in front of them, they probably, without exception, would tell you no. But if they devote their time to sitting inside a bar and spend money that should have been spent for better purposes and squander their health and sacrifice their relationships so that they can keep on and on drinking... Well, then their actions prove what they're really worshiping, don't they? And just about anything can become an idol. Anything at all that draws worship and devotion and adoration away from God becomes an idol for us. And that's exactly what was going on with the Pharisees today in this text. 
See, they saw Jesus receiving all of this praise and all the attention of the crowds, and they didn't like it. Right? We, we read in verse 9, the people were all shouting to Jesus, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heavens. And, you know, the Pharisees hated that. But the next verse says, so some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And they were saying, Jesus, shame on you. Shame on you for letting the people go on like that. And why did they feel that way? Because seeing Jesus elevated meant that their prestige and their importance was diminished. And for most of them, their political influence and their economic power was so central to them that they believed their lives would lose meaning without it. And so for those groups of people, power became their idol. And that doesn't mean power is always a bad thing. But just to be clear, power in of itself is not bad, like when we use it to bring glory to God, or we use it to ennoble or give dignity to human life, or we use it to relieve suffering, then it's a good thing. But when power becomes an ultimate thing, and when I use whatever power I have for the purpose of bringing order and safety and security only to my life, in the life of my family at the expense of other people, then power becomes not only a very alluring idol, but a very destructive force. Just like it was in first century Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago, as Jesus sets his face toward the holy city and rode toward a fate that he knew waited for him before this holy week was over. A fate that was preordained by God, but that was willingly carried out by all of these politicians and power players of the day who Incredibly, incredibly, even though their factions couldn't agree on anything else, they willingly collaborated to kill the Son of God. Think about that. Just to kind of fill in the the background so you can realize the tension that Jesus is, is riding into, when Rome ruled the world, the Israelites basically became a prisoner in their own country. Now, ostensibly, they had freedom of religion. They could manage their own internal business, they could trade with their own currency, but Rome watched and governed every move that they made. Literally, from the big Roman fortress, the Fortress Antonia, that overlooked the temple. And from there, Rome dictated the laws of the land. Rome dictated how many taxes the Israelites would pay. Rome dictated who Israel's king was going to be. If Rome said move, the people moved. If Rome said jump, they jumped. And just to make sure that no one stepped out of line, Roman soldiers were all over Israel, making sure that the people knew who was in power. And it wasn't just that they walked around the streets like patrolmen, but they would actually take great delight in roughing the people up from time to time, just for the fun of it. And it wasn't uncommon for a Roman soldier to grab you and to force you to carry his pack or his gear. And for anybody stupid enough to refuse, it wasn't too uncommon that you'd get knocked flat by a Roman fist making contact with your face. And if you were really stupid and hinted at any type of rebellion against Rome, you could find yourself arrested and crucified. And as a matter of fact, the Romans actually perfected the art of crucifixion for just that purpose. And in places all over Israel, crosses lined the streets with so-called criminals against the state, nailed to them, and so naturally living day after day 
under the oppression of such an occupying force, the questions in the minds of most Israelites were, how do we regain power over the Romans? When's our time coming? What's going to be the power that's going to restore Israel and and give back the control of our country to us so we can manage our own destiny? And, you know, of course, for them, just like it is today, every single faction believed that they had the only perfect solution and that the rest of the country better just get in line if they wanted to make any progress. Does it sound like 2017? And within this Israelite nation, this tension that I want you to see is there's basically four important groups that jockeyed for power, and the first were the Sadducees. They were the elite, the aristocrats. They were the guys in charge of the temple, and so they tended to be wealthy and and powerful guys in powerful positions, including that of chief priest and high priest. And they held the majority in the 70-seat ruling council of the Sanhedrin. And if you wanted a word to identify their strategy in dealing with the Romans, it was collaborate. You see, the chief priests had to stay just close enough to Rome to be allowed to rule the temple, but they couldn't get too close to the Romans, or else their fellow citizens wouldn't like and trust them very much anymore. So they had to walk a very narrow and often very hypocritical line in the sand so that they could keep and maintain a well-crafted balance of peace between the two. Then, of course, there's the Pharisees we mentioned. They're mostly the, the middle-class businessmen, guys who are more populist in their politics, more conservative in their religious beliefs. And because of that, they were held in very high esteem by the people, much higher than the Sadducees. So even though they're the minority party in the Sanhedrin and held a smaller number of priestly positions, they actually controlled a lot of the decision-making in the council because they had the support of the people. So their poll numbers were really high, if you see what I mean. And they were also primarily the teachers of the law and the defenders of tradition. And if you wanted a word to associate with them, the most common one would be self-righteousness. They thought they had the right way. And if Israel would just keep all those neglected commandments, those 613 commandments, plus all the oral traditions they had added on to them, if they could just get the people to listen to their side, and better yet, follow their example and follow their rules, then God would be so honored that he would destroy the Romans, liberate Israel, and put their party on top. Sounds like a good plan, right? But then the trouble was there was this other group called the Zealots, and their primary strategy was to fight. They said, Rome is evil. We're good. So we just need to be creative and courageous and tough, and we need to figure out ways to resist and figure out ways to undermine these Roman occupiers any way we can, openly if possible and by stealth if we have to. So they were the social justice warriors of the day, the radical protesters, the political terrorists who expected that God would bless their efforts against the Romans and put them in charge. You see the pattern here? All these people can't be at the top. And the last major group was the Essenes. You may know them from their association with the Dead Sea Scroll And if you want a word to associate with them, it's withdraw. Their thinking was, it's not just the Romans that were bad, the whole world is bad. The whole system is corrupt. So corrupted by the Romans and the Gentiles. So we're not going to have anything to do with any of it. We're not going to go to the temple. We're not going to bring sacrifices. We're not going to be involved in anything. In fact, we're going to start our own little community for just the people who think like us. 
So then we'll finally get things right. And God's going to wipe everybody out. The Jewish collaborators, the Romans, the Gentiles. And then it's just going to be us. You see? And they were each so convinced of their system, of their way of thinking, and that their way was the best. that It consumed them to the point where their ideologies mattered more than the presence of the Son of God who was preaching and teaching and performing miracles right in front of them. Proving that a religious system without a right connection to God can ultimately become a God in itself, can it? Because had they only understood their own scriptures and what the scriptures were telling them, they wouldn't have been jealous of Jesus. They would have rejoiced to see him. They wouldn't have tried to silence this whole crowd of worshipers around him. They would have joined in with them. But they didn't do that, did they? And Jesus comes along and says, if the people don't cry out, these stones will have to proclaim my glory. And you get the idea from what he's talking about here. You get the sense that he's saying, Nothing's going to hold back praise for God on this day as I ride into the city. Jesus is telling them something or somebody is going to worship God today. Because the kingdom of God is right here. It's in front of you and great things are happening in the world. And we know from our Bibles that all of creation was designed to worship God. You don't have to look very far to see it. Take a look at the poetic verses like in the Psalms. Psalm 96, 11 says, let the Heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Psalm 98 picks up from there and says, Let the seas and everything in it shout his praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap their hands in glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy before the Lord. Isaiah says, You'll live in joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst forth into song. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. You see, everything, everything was designed to bring glory to God in one way or another. I'll give you one last example. Consider the words of John the Baptist, the harsh words he had for the teachers of the law in Matthew 3, verse 9. He says, don't say to each other, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. So you might be tempted to think, well, if the creation itself can sing and praise God, and if God can make followers out of these stones, what does he need us for? Well, guess what? The the truth is, he doesn't. That's basically the message here to these arrogant religious elite, because you see, God doesn't need us. He loves us. If he needed anything, he wouldn't be God. He wasn't lonely and desperate for fellowship before he created us. See, he was in a perfect fellowship with himself in the Trinity because the Godhead is a being in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in an eternal and perfect relationship of love. So no, God doesn't need us. But out of the abundance of that love, God chose to create us and to love us and pursue us and rescue us even though humanity rejected him. That's why Romans says in chapter 5, verse 8, for Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And this great plan that God put in place from the beginning of creation, a plan that today Jesus takes one more step toward as he he rides this little female donkey in this little nursing colt through a throng of worshipers who, before the week is over, 
before the next seven days are going to be completely passed, would be whipped into a frenzy by all of those political groups and all of those religious leaders and force the hand of their Roman governor to order the death of the only person in Jerusalem who really loved them. Does that make any kind of sense? And he loved them even in that moment on the cross. That moment that Christ became the one pure sacrifice that would satisfy the righteousness of God and fulfill the deepest longings of people. You know, all of those longings that no political party or social ideology or man-made religion are ever going to fill up. And it's been that way since Jesus' day and from before. And it's true for all of us, even in this generation. In fact, an early Christian theologian, St. Augustine, wrote, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, their creator, made known through Jesus Christ. He said there's a God-shaped vacuum, there's a God-shaped hole right in the middle of you, in the heart of every person, that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Sure, we try to fill up that hole with all kinds of things, all kinds of cheap imitations, those things the Bible calls idols, right? The idol of, of work, the idol of our appearance or our accomplishments or our, our 401ks, new cars, nice houses, picture-perfect families. Have I hit your idol yet? But see, this God-shaped whole can only be filled by the God who gives us all of those other things, but on his terms and not ours. Because the truth is we are designed to worship God and God alone. That's why the Ten Commandments start out with, thou shalt have no other God before me. Because God wants us to be worshipers who not just come to chapel on Sunday, but that worship every day, at every moment, aware of his presence, of his love, his guidance, his provision. And he wants us to, from the depths of our being, shout his praises. Because today is the day. This is the time. This is when you and I are being called to worship. So please, don't let another Palm Sunday go past without singing God's praises. And raising those palm branches. And sing praises to our God as we celebrate the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, then the stones will have to do it for us. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, I pray right now, Lord, for any that uh, still have hearts of stone, for any, Father, who have never really answered the question of who you are in their lives, I pray that you would draw close to their hearts in this moment, that you would move them to respond to your invitation of love. And, Father, you've promised that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, then we will be saved. So I ask that you would reach out now, Father, by your Holy Spirit to all those hearts that you're drawing to yourself and make all of us, Father, be ready to sing and praise to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.